Thanks, Daniel. I think uh, each of our, our stories are all um, so unique, um, and yet um, we have different, yeah, different journeys that have brought us to where we are. Um, I'm going to actually invite Daniel. He's had a hard time finding a seat. I'm going to invite him to come back up as well as uh, um, Isabel Han and uh, Eugene Huang and John Fong and Ryan Lee. So if you guys could come on up. These are our new member uh, candidates today. Wonderful group of single young men and women who are, in, <laughs> that's purely descriptive, <laughs> who are uh, wanting to commit to Christ and his church. You know, I think a lot of times we, in, in our culture today, we uh, can easily say that we're a Christian, but for uh, the early church, when we consider, when people came out and said, I'm a follower of Christ, it was a willingness to make a, a very uh, serious and lifelong commitment to Christ and his church, willing to uh, make any kind of a sacrifice in order that the cause of Christ and the glory of the Savior might be made known. And today, I think it's easy for us to be Christian without having any affiliation or association with the church. Um, what membership is, is it's saying, not only am I committed to Christ in my individual personal walk with him, but as a community, I not only believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but I believe in the church. And I believe that this is the uh, the vehicle through which God advances his kingdom more rapidly than any other. And so today, as they commit themselves to our church, I'm going to ask them um, to uh, raise their right hand and to covenant before you and before God and before um, our church the vows that they have heard through our membership seminars, but also during our membership interview that they have uh, explained back to me to explain what they're committing themselves to. So um, if you're a member, we have about 56, 57 official members of, of Harvest and a bunch of attendees. If you're a member of our church, I would encourage you, as you hear these promises, uh, to hear them again and to renew your commitment to Christ and to his church. And if there are areas in which you may have neglected the vows of membership, that you would make a commitment in your heart to renew your, uh, your vows to the Lord God. Okay, so if you guys would raise your right hands and answer these questions, if you acknowledge them to be true, if you promise them, then you can answer by saying amen, and if you could speak your answer loudly. Uh, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except through his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? You now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as a follower of Christ. You promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. You submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace. All right, you can put your hands down. Jonathan Fong, Isabel Han, Eugene Huang, Ryan Lee, Daniel Yu, uh, we welcome you. You are now official members with all the rights and privileges of Harvest Korean Presbyterian Church of Orlando. When people would join the church in membership ceremonies like this, and uh, oftentimes it would be said that the body of Christ has gained new sets of eyes to see the world in need, uh, new sets of hands to serve, new sets of feet to go into the places where the church is called to go. So let's uh, pray for them as we commit them and commit our church to the Lord continually. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and your blessing upon these men and women. We thank you for the commitment that you have made to them and the commitment that they've made to you and to your church. We thank you for Ryan and Daniel and Isabel and John and Eugene, and we thank you for calling them away from the world, out of the world, out of darkness, out of sin, and into your marvelous light with gifts and with talents, with heart, with uh, so much in them through which they could change the world. And we pray that you would do that. May they become Christ-centered leaders more and more. May they glorify you as they go forth into their respective corners of the world to bring transformation. And as we get to know them and hear their stories in the weeks to come, may we as a congregation fall more and more in love with them, embracing them fully in order that together we might accomplish your great purposes for us and through us for the blessing of the nations and for the glory of your name. We thank you so much. We love you. We love you. Uh, We pray that as we hear your word now, that you would speak clearly to us. Give us ears to hear. May you be with me, my gracious master and my God. Assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give them a round of applause as they go back to their seats. Thank you. I look forward to uh, hearing, uh, and I look forward to having them share, uh, the rest of them share their stories with us so that we might uh, <clears throat> become more acquainted with them also, but to, to hear the ways in which God is using our church to encourage and to bless people like Daniel has, has shared today. Uh, let's see, last weekend was, last weekend was uh, Thanksgiving weekend, so some of y'all were out. How many of you guys were here last week? I was here last weekend. Okay. Seems like more than 20 of y'all were here, but... Okay, good. Um, and how many of you guys remember what we talked about last week? Oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we talked about the book of Ezra. Okay. Book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra was written. Okay. Brief history review. We've got two kingdoms, people of God, Israel in the north, 10 tribes, Judah in the south, two tribes. Both of them sinned bad, 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 bad. And so the northern kingdom got attacked by Assyria and they're kaput. Okay, so they're gone. You just got two kingdoms, two little tribes left in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is the Jewish people. This is the people of God. They don't learn the lesson of their older brothers and sisters or brothers and sisters, and they get in trouble. So 586 BC or starting in 606 BC, three times successively, they get taken and deported into Babylon, which is the superpower of the day. Finally, in 586 BC, their capital city, Jerusalem, gets crumbled. Temple is destroyed, and they get taken off into exile. Bad, 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 bad period for the people of God. Okay, so Jewish people are taken into exile in Babylon. <clears throat> Babylon is the major superpower of the day. Come about 40-some 40, uh, 40 years later, about 539, 540, Babylon gets overtaken as the world leader by the Persian Empire, okay, the mighty Persian Empire. They conquer all of these lands, and they've got all of these people under their control and one, they established four capital cities in different parts of their empire. One of them remains Babylon. Okay, so the people of God, the Jewish people, are still in Babylon. And uh, the empire stretches far, 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 very far. So 539, the king named Cyrus says, hey, Jewish people, you guys can go back home, rebuild your temple. So in 539, they go back and they start building, restoring the temple. This should sound familiar, hopefully, if not. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Not either. So 539, they go back and they start rebuilding. 50,000 out of 2, 3 million people. And they start rebuilding the temple. They're building it, building it, building it. 70 years later, okay, this was Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. 70 years later, Ezra, the priest, comes and restores the hearts of the people. Okay? Does this sound familiar? 
Hopefully, yes. Okay, good. Only one no. Thank you, Lord. You, hopefully you weren't here. Okay, so 70-year gap. In that 70-year gap between these two restorations, this is where the message of the book of Esther comes in. Aha. Uh-huh. How many of you guys know that there's a book of the Bible called Esther? Okay, good, good, good. How many of you guys know a girl named Esther? Okay, you have friends named Esther? Okay, probably they were named after this book of the Bible. How many of you guys knew that Esther is one of only two books of the Bible that are named for women? Okay, good. The other one is Ruth. Good, 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 good. So Esther and Ruth, Esther and Ruth. Um, how many of you guys know the story of the book of Esther? I know the story of the book of Esther. Okay. Uh, Sarah, can you come up and tell it real quick? Just kidding. Okay, so book of Esther. She was very excited. May not have heard Ezra, may not have understood that, but she knows Esther. Okay. The book of Esther is fascinating. It is a fascinating account of a true story that happened around the time 483 to 473 B.C. Amazing story. I would encourage you to go back and read it. I read it a couple times this week, not only in preparing for it, but it was just, I was fascinated by it. This was like Hunger Games, Harry Potter, all that stuff. This is like so much better than that. Amazing, amazing stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and tell the story real quick up until the point in which our text comes up, and then I'm going to read the text, and then... Um, just kind of walk us through it, but not only for its spiritual importance, but if you, if you just like literature, this is phenomenal stuff. If you get into it, if you understand a little bit of it, if you read it slowly enough, you'll find that it's really, really funny. A lot of funny stuff, a lot of irony if you're into irony, a lot of really neat things like that. So Book of Esther, Persian Empire, okay, per, it takes place in Persian Empire. Uh, Ezra was written about the, to the people that went home during the exile Esther was written to the people who are remaining in exile, that 2 million, 3 million minus 50,000 who didn't go back home to Judah. This was addressed to them because this was about them. How do we live in exile? This is a story of Esther. So you've got in the Persian Empire, a dominant empire. They've swallowed uh, the Babylonian Empire. There are five main characters, five main characters in the book of Esther. The first one is a king named Xerxes. How many of you guys ever heard of Xerxes before? If you've seen the movie 300, you guys remember the movie 300 where Leonidas and the Spartans, 300 of them, take on the big bad Persians? Because Persia was the dominant superpower of the day. And the king in that movie was this King Xerxes. And in the movie, he was blue and he had like holes all over his face and he was a giant because they kind of took liberty to say he was like a god king, like a god man. Um, That wasn't, he wasn't really like that. Um, But... That's kind of gives you insight into his character. He was a king, but he was psycho. This guy was nutty. There was a book by Herodotus. He was a Greek uh, historian, wrote a book called The Histories, and he talks about Xerxes, and this guy was nutty. He basically presents him as a drunk, angry, impulsive, emotional, says one thing one day, forgets it, says another thing the next day, kills people at whim. That's who he is. He's the king of the most powerful empire in the world at the time. So he's the king of Persia. This is Xerxes. His wife is named Vashti. Vashti was beautiful. That's all we know about her. She was a looker. She was a babe. That's it. Vashti, king and queen, Xerxes, Vashti, they live in a winter home. 
in a, in a city called Susa. Susa was one of four capitals of the Persian Empire, okay? Four capitals of the Persian Empire. And Susa was where they made their winter home. Kind of like a lot of people live up north. They come down, they've got a home in Florida to spend the warm months here during the wintertime. So Susa was the Florida of the Persian Empire. So uh, Vashti, Xerxes, they live here in the palace of Susa, okay? One of the capitals of the Persian Empire. You've got a girl named Esther. She is the the heroine of the story. So Esther, just she was a, a, a Jewish girl living in exile. Her parents died, so she was an orphan. She was adopted by her older cousin, a man named Mordecai. Okay, Mordecai is the fourth person in the story. Mordecai is the cousin, the adoptive uh, guardian of Esther. Okay, Esther, beautiful, that's all we know about it. She was, just, she, she was hot, that's it. Okay, so Esther and then Mordecai, her older cousin who adopts her. Okay, fourth person. Fifth person is a guy named Haman. Okay, Haman was one of the king's officials. He became a very powerful man in the kingdom of Persia. Okay, so you got these five people. The message of Esther begins in the palace where Xerxes is having this massive feast. So he invites all the people to come, and they're partying, and they're getting drunk, and they're kind of off their trolleys a little bit. And so he says, I want Vashti to come and to dance and to show her beauty, because he wants to show her off to all of the people in the kingdom. And Vashti, like any self-respecting woman, says, No, I'm not going to come and dance in front of your drunk friends. I don't want to do that. That's stupid. And so Xerxes gets upset. I mean, he's already upset. That's just how he is in, by nature. But he gets more upset, and so he says, Vashti, you're fired. And so she's gone as queen. He's like, Wow, I've got an issue now. I need a new queen. And so he says, well, let's have a beauty pageant. Let's invite my, my empire is massive. And I've got people from all these different nations, all these different provinces, all these different ethnic groups. I don't even know how to keep track of any of them, but bring in the most beautiful women and have them come. And so they would come and for a year they would get beauty treatments, right? They would get like facial stuff and do their hair and all that for one whole year. And then they would come before the king and he would say, okay. You're good, I like you, and you need to, you know, I, I don't like you, and all this stuff. And as a result of all of these things, Esther gets chosen to be the queen out of all of these people. All these beautiful, amazing, fabulous women. He chooses Esther, and Esther becomes the queen. That doesn't mean much. It's a figurehead role because he's still got his harem. His harem is a group of women that he can call on any of them at any day and say, hey, I want to uh, spend some time with you. Let's go on a date and you pleasure me and make me happy and all this stuff. So he had this harem of people. And Esther was one of them, even though she was the queen. So that's kind of where uh, the book of Esther begins. Now, as the story goes, Mordecai is kind of hanging around and he finds out from these two people that these two people want to kill the king. So Mordecai hears this, and he's like, oh, my gosh, Esther, you got to tell your husband, the king, that these cats are trying to kill you. They're trying to assassinate you. So Esther says, okay. And so she tells the king, and he's like, oh, my gosh, that's great. And so that story gets written in the history books, and, oh, you know, Mordecai, this great guy, all this stuff happens. So after that, this guy named Haman, bad guy, he's a bad guy. Haman is bad. Haman rises to power, and... Everyone is giving their respect. They're bowing to him, saying, oh, you're great, you're honorable, we love you, all this stuff. But Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to do it because I don't think you're all that, plus you're not my God. I'm not going to bow down to you. And so Haman gets very mad at Mordecai. He says, what you say, you ain't bowed down to me? Then you know what? I know you're a Jew. I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to kill every Jew in the Persian Empire. 
That's crazy, right? Well, there's a little bit of history because he is, Haman is an Amalekite, and for years and years and years and years, the Amalekites and the Israelites have been at odds with each other. At one point in 1 Kings 15, God told Saul, King Saul, to wipe out all the Amalekites, but Saul doesn't do it. And because of that, this issue rears its ugly head. Haman says, I want to kill all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. This is genocide here. And he wants to, this is the pre-Holocaust Holocaust about to happen. And so, Mordecai's like, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me, my family, everybody. And so he goes to Esther and he's like, yo, you got to do something. Because even though you're the queen, you're a Jew. And if he got rid of Vashti, he's going to get rid of you too. You got to do something. You got to do something. But there's a problem because for him to say, hey, queen, go talk to king, it's not like somebody saying to Michelle Obama, go talk to your president, your husband. Because in the ancient Near East, these leaders were all despots. That means that they kill people at whim. You don't go to them unless you are summoned by the king. So to go before the king unannounced is to put your neck on the line. And most likely you're going to die. So you've got Esther. She's faced with this choice. What do you do? What do you do? Chapter 4, starting in verse 10 through verse 16. This is going to be our text for today. I'm going to read it. I'm going to give us some thoughts, and then we're going to finish out the story, and we'll see Jesus in it. Chapter 4, verse 10. We'll start verse 9, since that's where the paragraph starts. So, Hathak went back... And reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Talk about a dysfunctional marriage, right? Have not seen your wife for 30 days. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is God's word. So how do we live in exile? What is Esther's call? What does she show us? What does she teach us? The first thing we see is that sometimes... Uh, silence is not an option. Sometimes, silence is not an option. I know that you know, for a lot of us, we've been taught growing up that silence is golden, right? Just don't stand out. Especially, you know, some of us, if, if you heard uh, Greg Howe at Unlocked when he spoke a couple weeks ago, he said, that's what he said, we're conflict avoidant as, as people of Asian backgrounds. We don't want to stand out. The nail that sticks out gets hammered back in. So just kind of mind your own business, don't talk too much. Don't talk too loudly. Just kind of stay in the middle ground. Don't choose sides or else you're going to get beat up. Someone's going to hate you. Just 
Just do your business. Put your hand to the grill. Do your work. Go about your business. Don't bother anybody. Just be quiet. That's it. Right? Don't rock the boat. Right? That's what a lot of us have been told. And so we value that. We value being silent because we think that silence is neutrality. Hey, let's go to Chipotle. No, 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 no. I want to go to Firehouse. What do you think? It doesn't matter. So we're quiet. We toe that line because we don't want to offend anybody. Because we're saying, if I choose a side, then someone's going to get mad at me. But silence is neutrality. But I think silence betrays something deeper. Silence, rather than being a sign of neutrality, is actually a sign of apathy and indifference. Hey, let's go to Firehouse. No, let's go to Chipotle. Where do you want to go? Your silence says, I don't care. I don't care. And there's some situations when it comes to culinary preferences where that's fine. But there are other times when you realize that silence is not an option. So every night this, this happens, Manny and Elijah are sleeping in, there, in, in Manny's room. They've got their own bed. Elijah's got his fire truck, and Manny's got her big old posh princess in the pee bed. So they're both sleeping. And invariably we'll hear, Mommy, Daddy, and it's usually Manny. We're like, Manny, be quiet, go to sleep, because she just wants to get out of sleeping. That's what we say. And she comes running out, or she says, I need you, I need you, I really, really need you. So we walk over there, what is it? She says, Yaya hit me. Yaya spit on me. Yaya bit me. Whatever it is that he does, he did it. He's climbing on me. He's stepping on me. He took my mung mung, he put it in his mouth, and all of these things that he's doing. And we're like, just be quiet. You don't have to tell us everything that he does. Just go to sleep. But she can't. you know why? Because this bothers her. She cares about it. Because she can't be silent. Because to be silent means I don't care about this. And I do care. Because she realized that sometimes silence is not an option. Look at what Esther says. She says, or what Mordecai says, do not think uh, that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, okay, relief and deliverance will rise, but you and your father's family will perish. There are certain situations in life where silence is not an option. For her to remain silent means that her people are going to die. For her to remain silent means genocide. For her to remain silent is that injustice is going to continually be perpetrated against her people and the glory of God and the line, the promise of God that's been given through history past Abraham, that your Savior is going to come, Genesis 3.15, all of that stuff, for her to remain silent, all that stuff is put on the altar of sacrifice because she, if she remains silent. You understand that a lot of times our silence is not taking a neutral stance. Our silence is showing that we're apathetic and we don't care about the situation at hand. There are a lot of times where we can't be silent. There are situations in our day where we choose to be silent because that's my personality. I'm quiet. I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. I don't like to reach out to new people. I don't like to greet the person who's new. I don't like to give a phone call or send a message or send an email or meet up with a person who hasn't been to church for three weeks. That's not my personality. But at a certain point, we have to realize that silence is not an option. At what point is that? Even though it goes against our personality, even it goes against our cultural background, there's a certain point in time where we have to realize that when lives are at stake, we can't be silent anymore. 
There's stuff going on in our day, isn't there, where we can't be silent. I can't afford to be silent in a denomination in a, pre, in a denomination that's going astray. I can't be silent about the inerrancy of Scripture and the fact that I stand my ground on the Word of God and I cannot base decisions based on culture and their understanding of sexuality or their understanding about homosexuality, their understanding about how we can be saved. This is the only thing that I can stand on. That, And at a certain point, we can't be silent about that. It goes against conscience to remain silent. It has nothing to do with personality at this point. When you see people, it's a life and death situation. It has nothing to do with your upbringing or the fact that mom and dad told me this or my Confucian roots told me this or I'm an introvert and I can't say anything. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that when life and death are on the line, there's no recourse but for us to go forward and to speak out against these things. There's a guy named Martin Luther. He was a, he was a very shy guy. He was a German friar. Basically, he was a monk who did monk-like things, but not in a monastery. He did it in the public square. That's who Martin Luther was. And he heard that there was people in that Roman, in the, what was then just the church, who were telling people that, hey, if you give me enough money, I can set your relatives free and they can go to heaven, the ones who've died already. Especially, there's particularly a guy named Johann Tetzel. He was a great salesman, smooth talking. And he had this advertising jingle that says, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as you put the money in, then your dead relative is going to go to heaven. So people are like, I want my dead relatives to go to heaven. So they're giving all kinds of money. And Martin Luther's like, hold up, wait a minute, this isn't right. We're not saved by giving money. We're saved by grace alone. And so he said, I can't be silent, even though he was a, a, I mean, he's a friar. He doesn't talk. But he said, you know what? I've got, I've got 95 problems with the way that the church is doing things right now. See, so he wrote them on this piece of paper, and then he pinned them up on a door of a church. That's what you do when you want to have an intellectual, scholarly debate. You write down what you want to talk about, and you put it on the bulletin board. That's all he was doing. He didn't want to start a revolution, let alone a reformation. He just wanted to talk. And all of a sudden, he was thrust into the public eye. And he became the figurehead of a group of protesting people that sought to reform the church. And that became known as the Protestant Reformation. Very good. Protestant Reformation. And as a result of him doing this, and he, he never wanted to be a lead guy. He just went, let's just talk. But he was put on trial. He was excommunicated. And the Pope said at the Diet of Worms, they said, listen, if you find Martin Luther, you can kill him. He's a heretic, and there will be no consequence to your life if you kill him. I mean, talk about putting your life on the line. At that place where they told him, you, could, you need to recant your statement, he says, to, for me to recant, I can't do that. And this isn't, probably isn't what happened, but most of the history records said, uh, up until recently, past 50 years, where people began disputing, he said, here I stand. I can do no other. My life is on the line. People's lives, people's souls, people's eternity are at stake. And they're being, they're being fooled and they're being duped into thinking that they can buy their relatives out of, out of hell, out of purgatory. It's had nothing to do with his personality. Nothing to do with Myers-Briggs. Nothing to do with his upbringing. He just said, I can't stay silent. Because silence is a sign that we don't care. There are a lot of situations in our day where the world needs to hear our voice. Throughout history, people were silent during the civil rights movement. People were silent during the times of abortion. People were silent during times of 
of, of human trafficking. At a certain point, we can't be silent anymore. When lives are at stake, when souls are at stake, when the history books are written about our, our time and our day, it's going to be like it was in the 60s, 70s, whatever it was. People are going to say the majority of people were silent about the devastating effects of pornography, about the direction our world is going in as it relates to homosexuality and the free reign that we're giving and saying, oh, let people do whatever they feel like doing. There's going to be the great majority of people who remain silent about it. If you remain silent, you won't be alone. But I ask, is that the group that you want to be identified with? The people who said, I don't care about the direction of the world, about our future, about the generations to come. When people, when you're 80 years old, 90 years old, and people say, what did you do? Well, you weren't one of the silent ones, were you? That we would be able to say with clear conscience, no, I could not remain silent. I did something about it. I spoke out against it. Because there's certain times where silence is not an option. Is not an option. That's the first thing that we see. Second thing that we see is that we are where we are for a, uh, in this specific moment, for God's purpose. Okay, you are where you are for a very specific purpose right now. It, look at what Mordecai says to Esther. Verse 14 again, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I think this is one of the most beautiful statements of Scripture, for such a time as this. You are where you are living in the 21st century, in the year 2014, for such a time as this. There's something that you have to offer to the world that desperately, desperately needs for you to not be silent and for you to rise into your identity and your calling. Think about this. How did Esther become the queen, the most powerful of the most powerful empire in the world? Was it because she was beautiful? There were scores of beautiful people there. Because she could dance well? She had good eyes because she had clear skin. And she wasn't the only one. There were tens of thousands of people in the Persian Empire that could just have easily been considered to be queen. But was it for the fact that God wanted to save his people that he brought her to a position for such a time as this? Listen, you've got to understand that you are where you are because God wants you to be there for a very specific purpose because the world needs you to be where you are. Especially for those of you who feel like, I have no business being where I am. There are people like that here, right? There's no way I should have gotten that job. Are you kidding me? There's no way I should have gotten that job, but you're there. There's no way you should have been in that college, but somehow by the grace of God, you're there. There's no way you should be making the money that you're making, but somehow you are. Why? Can I tell you what you've heard many times before? You've read Purpose Driven Life. And 
God has given you influence and God has given you affluence. And these two gifts are amongst the most powerful things that you have at your disposal to accomplish the will and the purpose of God for where you are in your generation in this time in human history. Your influence has been given to you so that you could be a voice to people who have no influence. And your affluence has been given to you in order that you might use your resources in order to bring hope and bring kingdom, vision, and purposes to a people in need. If you're in a place and you're in a job, you're in a school, you're in a situation, you've become president of an organization, you've got this position where people listen to you, it is not simply for you to pad your resume or for you to pad your bank account. You have been called for such a time as this because the world needs you. Because you are where you are, I am where I am, we are where we are for a very specific purpose, for the glory of God. And you've got to understand that. Nothing in your life is an accident. Some of you are on the other side. You're like, you know what? Uh, I'm not where I want to be. I don't know why I'm here. I should have been at that college, but I'm here. And you don't like it. Can I tell you that all of your disappointments are God's appointment for his purpose in your life? My goodness, some of us are complaining about where we are, but God has you there. Why? Because Abraham Kuyper said this many years ago. He said, there's not a square inch in all of creation, in the whole existence of of the world, where God, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every corner of the earth is God's, and that's why he places us in the different corners of the world, because he wants a witness in those places. That's why God said in Genesis Two, be fruitful and multiply, spread throughout all of the earth because he wanted the image of God. When people saw the image of God, they saw God. He wanted the image of God to be placed in every corner of creation so that people would see the rule and the reign of God. You are where you are because God wants you to shine for him where you are. Because God needs a witness at the university and he needs a witness at the college as much as he needs a witness at the community college. What if all the Christians were only at one school, the number one school in the world? There would be no witness of believers in the people who needed it the most. That's why God places people in the cities. He places people in the suburbs. He places people in the countryside. He places people on the farms because he wants and needs a witness in all of these places, wherever we might be. That's why some are working corporate. Some have small businesses. Some are working in cabinets of, of of, of corporations. We are where we are because God screams, all of this is mine. And I want and I need a witness there. Who knows? But that you have been brought to such a place for such a time as this. Tell you what, if you stare long and hard enough, the grass will always be greener on the other side. And so some of you are thinking, I need to relocate to another city. I don't like it here. I've been here for 15 years and I'm still single. I don't like it at my company because even though they treat me good and even though they know I'm a believer, I want more money elsewhere. I don't like it here. I don't like if we look hard enough, there will be greener grass elsewhere. I promise you that. That's just a fact of life. The question is not, is the grass greener on the other side? Is the opportunity better? The question is, are you done fulfilling the purpose of God where you are right now? That's a question we got to ask. God wants you there. Because there's people where you are who need him. And they need you to be the expression of him for them to see. 
Where do you see needs in our world? You're put there because our world needs you at this particular moment in human history. Think about this. Think about this for a second. This might be helpful for, for, for some of y'all. Think about what you love. And what do you love? And what are you great at? See, this is your passion. Right? This is your passion. What do you love? What are you great at? Think about this. What do you love and what does the world need? See, this is your mission. What do, you, what do you love? What does the world need? This is your mission. And the intersection of all these things, what you love to do, what you're great at doing, and what, your world, what the world needs, this is your purpose in life. Right? You're needed where you are because God's brought you to such a position for such a time as this. That's the second thing. Last thing that we see. Last thing that we see. Uh, never underestimate, never underestimate what God can do uh, through one person. Never underestimate what God can do through one person. And Mordecai says, Esther, you got to do it. You got you to do it. Look at, look at what, what Esther says. Uh, well, it says in, in, in verse 11, Everybody knows that any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, king has but one law, that he be put to death. She basically, think, okay, Mordecai, um, I'm going to do it, but let me just tell you what this means for me. It means that my neck is on the line. Nobody goes to the king on approach, unsummoned, and uh, he can't call for me in 30 days. It's been a whole month. Got all these other women, all these other people. He hadn't asked for me, hadn't paged me, no text message, nothing like that. 30 days. What am I going to do? I'm just saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to him. I'm just saying, this is what's at stake for me. And these great, these great words at the end of verse 16. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. He realized. Some things in life are worth dying for. These are the kind of people that God uses. One person. Don't underestimate what God can do through one person. One Martin Luther King. Martin Luther. One Martin Luther King Jr. The reason why we're here is because of Martin Luther King Jr. You know that, right? It wasn't just for African Americans. It was for all of us to immigrate here, to be able to vote. That's, that's one person. One, I have a dream. That's why we're here. One person. One Mother Teresa. One Rosa Parks. Definitely not their personality. To be loud and draw attention, but just one person. People that God uses, one person who realized that they found something worth living and worth dying for. You hear this in movies. I don't know if it's Braveheart or somewhere. Every man dies, but not every man lives. You only live if you found something worth dying for. Give yourself to that. And she found that her people were worth dying for. You remember in the movie Frozen, great scene towards the end of the movie where Anna is freezing in that room that, I forget what the bad guy's name is. She threw her in there. She was locked in there. And then up, Olaf rolls up in there trying to thaw her out, fireplace and all this stuff. And Olaf is, starts melting. So Olaf told me about this. Olaf starts melting. And Anna's like, Olaf, you're melting. And this is what he says. This is like powerful. That's why Elijah loves Olaf so much. 
some people are worth melting for. What is, he, what is he saying? Literally, here's what he's saying. As a snowman, to melt is to die. To freeze is to live. I'm just kidding. To melt is to die. He's saying some people... Some people are worth dying for. Some people are worth dying for. Some things worth dying for. He found this thing in life worth giving up everything for. God uses us. You can never underestimate what God can do through one person. And you read through the history books, there's countless stories, just one person, one person who had a dream, one person, John Adams, 1770, saw a day when we'd be free from the parliament of, of Britain. I see a nation, one nation under God, and, and several years later, our nation was born. One, the Wright brothers, <laughs> one day I see a, we, us flying. People are like, you kidding me? And again, the great majority of us are here because of the vision of the Wright brothers that someone flew you over from wherever your ancestors came from or took you on a boat for some of us, but rode on a plane. One person revolutionized the world. And and what Mordecai says is, he says, listen, if you don't do it, relief and deliverance are going to come from God from someone else. It's not you. Someone else is going to do it. There's a hero in every generation. There's a leader in every generation. The question he's asking is, why not you? Why not me? Why not us? Why should we be the ones standing on the sidewalk clapping while the parade goes on, honoring the heroes? Why not us? Why can't we be that one person, that kernel of wheat that falls to the ground? and dies for a generation to come to see Jesus. And so Esther says, I'm going to go. And if I perish, I perish. And so she and all these people fast for three days, and she goes into the king, and because the king's heart has been peppered and prepared by prayer, he welcomes Esther and says, what can I do for you? And she says, well, why don't you have Haman Come join you at a banquet tomorrow, and I will tell you what my wish is. He says, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom is yours. So that night, Haman goes home, and he builds a gallows. That's a hangman's noose so that he could kill Mordecai. And that night, he prepares the next day to kill Mordecai. It just so happens that the king, that night, I'm just having a hard time sleeping. Because I want to I wanna read something that's going to bore me and put me to sleep. He calls the tennis, bring the book of annals, the record book of my reign. And as he's reading, he sees that Mordecai saved his life in that assassination plot some years ago. He's like, hold on. Did we ever honor that man? And the people say, no, you haven't honored him just so happens that at that moment, Haman is hanging out near the king's office. And so the king calls him in. He says, Haman, come here, come here, come here. There's somebody that I've got in mind. Great man. I want to I honor him. I want to bless him. Haman is thinking, that's me. <laughs> king loves me. He wants to honor me. So the king says, what should I do for him? And he gives him all this stuff that he should do. And the king says, great idea, Haman. You go do that for Mordecai. 
and he is mortified. What the nastiest just happened? So he does it for Mordecai. And so Esther has this banquet. Haman, the king are there. Mordecai happens to be there also. So the king says, Esther, what is it that you want from me? And Esther says, you know what? I'm going to put my cards on the table. I'm a Jew, and there's been issued an edict that all the Jews in your kingdom are supposed to get killed. You know, he's got millions of people, a bunch of different ethnic groups under his command. He signs off on decrees all the time. He's like, are you serious? I didn't know that. He's like, who, who wants to kill you? <laughs> he points to Haman, and the king is furious. So he goes, he storms out. So Haman knows he's dead meat, right? So what does he do? He tries to convince Esther, have mercy on me. And <laughs> this is crazy. As he's talking to her, he stumbles on the sofa and he falls on Esther right when King walks in. He's like, are you serious right now? You try and kill my queen, then you try and make out with her? He's like, have him hung on the gallows that hangs outside of his house. And the very gallows that he created to kill his enemy, he ends up being hung on that very gallows. The issue is given, the Jewish people fight back, and they're free, and a nation who is dead meat, a people who are dead, are alive. And they celebrate a feast which to this day is celebrated amongst the Jews called Purim, honoring and remembering the day that they were delivered from death. And you see the multiplicative effects of one person who's willing to lay down their lives for the sake of a cause of a people that they consider worthy. And so the book of Esther teaches us, how do we live in exile? How do we live in a foreign nation? How do we live when all the forces of evil are against us? Esther tells us how, and you can see why every other Korean girl is named Esther. <laughs> But let me pull the rug out before you go and name your next offspring, Esther. If you go through and read Esther, it doesn't really develop much about her character. It doesn't really say anything about she was big-hearted, she was kind. She, all it says, she was beautiful. That's it. Like she was a little bit of a sketchy character. That She went and she lost, gave her virginity to a weird foreign king and seduced him using her beauty in order to get what she wanted. She was weird. That's kind of shady stuff. So if you're a, that's why the book of Esther is not, actually is not written in a lot of children's books because there's some PG-13 kind of stuff. In fact, there's a lot of talk wondering, should Esther be in the Bible at all? Because when she gives this, she says, if I perish, I perish. It is very noble, and I, I, I understand that. But here's the reality. If she doesn't say anything, She's going to die. She's a Jew. He killed, he got rid of Vashti. He's going to get rid of her. He has, no, he has no qualms about it. If the decree is given, then no one is spared. If she doesn't say anything, if she stays silent, she's certainly going to die. If she doesn't stay silent, then she might die. <laughs> it, she's stuck between hmm, either certain death or possible death. Which will I? She chose possible death. I will perish versus. If I perish, and she chose if I perish. Either way, I mean, it, it, it's definitely heroic. I give you that because she would, have, she would have died by herself versus dying altogether. But 
Is she really all that? Hmm. Well, no. If the book of Esther doesn't mention, it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God, doesn't mention prayer, doesn't mention the law, doesn't mention sacrifice, none of that stuff. Why is this even in here? Well, that's what a lot of people debated. Some commentaries like Martin Luther didn't even write a commentary for Esther because he didn't believe that Esther should be in the Bible because she was so weird. Weird stuff. So what's the deal with Esther? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the reason why God's not mentioned, according to what I, what I understand. In fact, he is. Because four times, if you read through the Hebrew book of Esther, there are four verses where Yahweh appears as an acrostic in the verses, showing that God is there. You may not be able to see him, but he's there. And the reason why God's name is not included in this book written to the exiles in Persia was because if God appeared at all, then what censorship in those days would do is they would replace the name of God with the name of a Persian God. And the message would be watered down to make it seem like it's a Persian fairy tale. God is there. Trust me, God is there. Here's how he's there. He was there when Queen Vashti was deposed. He was there when Esther, can you imagine an orphaned Jewish girl, elevated to the most prominent position outside of the king? He was there during that sleepless night. King just so happened, I can't sleep. Just so happened that that's the book he wanted to read. Just so happened that Mordecai was the one who uncovered the assassination. Just so happened that Haman was the one who was there. And he called on him to ask. Just so happened that Haman had built a gallows. And it just so happened that all of these things happened. You don't see God, but at the same time you see him. Because here's the point. When God seems most noticeably absent, these are the times when God is most powerfully present. Could there be a moment in human history where God seemed more absent than Calvary? Where there was another who had come, risking, not only risking, but leaving his palace. Not saying, if I perish, I perish, but saying, when I perish, I will do it for my people. Jesus Christ is the true and greater Esther, the one that she points to. The only way that we can stand in exile and to not be silent and to lay down our lives, to believe that God has called us here, is if we put our complete trust in the one to whom Esther points. To know that in our darkest moments that God is there in power, waiting and wanting and seeking. And Esther's purpose in the Persian Empire was to give the people in exile a living picture of the God of Israel, our God. And that's what God's called us to do also. In a world that is in exile, a world that doesn't follow God, he's sending us forth to be like little Esther, to be like little Jesus, to be little Christ, to be Christians, and to scatter into the different parts of the world, to not be silent, to recognize that we are where we are for a purpose in time, for a specific point in time, in history, now for the glory of God and to believe that God can use our lives to make a difference in the Persian Empire that we're in now. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Let's um, consider 
Maybe we've been silent. Maybe it's issues related to Ferguson, race relations. Maybe it's issues related to our faith that gets ridiculed and mocked in the, in the public arena. Maybe it's in regards to what we believe in the midst of the secular university. We've been silent. Maybe you've been complaining that, God, why am I here? Why am I still where I am? And God wants you to realize that you're here for such a time as this. And maybe for some of us, God, at one point in time, breathed a vision, a dream into our lives that he wanted to use our lives, that he can use our lives, that he wants to use our lives to do something far greater. And we at one point believed that, but since then, we've blended back into the dominant culture of the world around us. And God is saying, believe again, dream again what I can do through your life. Can we take a moment to respond to the word of God right now? Say, Lord, help me to see, to hear what you would want to say to me today. And as you pray for yourself, can I just encourage you to pray for people around you also? Maybe your role is not to be somebody like Esther, but maybe your role is to be somebody like Mordecai in the life of another. Maybe your role is to be a prayer warrior for your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your house church member, your mom, your dad, your friend, a Barnabas to them so that their dream would become your dream, so that God's dream for them would be your dream for them as well, that you would breathe into them, encouraging them, strengthening them so that they might be an agent of revival and renewal in our world. Can you pray for yourself? Pray for your friends, your family members. Lord God, help us to rise up in our generation. People of change, people of revival. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. Let's pray together for a few moments like that, and then I'll pray on our behalf. Let's pray. baptized and confirmed, prepare to come to the Lord's table. The Bible tells us that we ought to come, need to come in a manner worthy of the sacrifice of Christ, or else we bring judgment upon our hearts. Let's pray, confessing to the Lord God any sin, maybe as it relates to sin in general, but maybe for complaining about where we are in our particular station of life. Instead of seeing that as God's blessing and God's gift, we've seen it as a curse or as something to be prayed away. Let's confess our lack of trust, our lack of belief, and other sins that we need to confess before the Lord in order that He might, in order that He might uh, purify us through the work that has been accomplished at the cross.
us. Let's pray, asking the Lord, make us clean, purify our hearts more and more. Let's pray, and then I will continue. and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who came into our world knowing that he would be crucified knowing that he would die for the sins not only of the world but for our sins my sins personally thank you Jesus that you love us with an infinite love in such a way that if we were the only ones in this world, you still would have come and died for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Remind us that we are here for such a time as this, that the world needs the gift that you've given to your church. Pray that you would help us to rise into our calling, individually as well as as a church. We thank you, Lord. We look to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.